It's a privilege to be with you again and to open up God's Word with you again. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this time that we're able to study the Song of Songs. And I pray, Lord, as we look at your Word, uh, that we might understand it. I pray that you would guide me as I seek to show and to lead them through its interpretation. And I pray that each one here, as they see what your Word says, that they might live more holy lives. Uh, Lord, as we work through a text today that has meant a lot to me and has really uh, changed even how I raise my children, I pray for the parents here. I pray that they would take your word to heart and that they might have wisdom. Uh, Give us wisdom, each of us, Lord, as we're parents and we seek what's best for our children and we want them to love well. Uh, Give us wisdom as we seek to guide our children uh, to love correctly, to love biblically. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to go ahead and just open up God's Word with you. We're going to start just in Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, chapter 1 and verse 12. That's where we left off. I was thinking of just jumping right to our text today, but I think I am going to build into it so you can kind of see the context in which our verse uh, is found. But uh, first, let's just start by reading through God's Word. So Song of Songs, chapter 1 and verse 12. While the king was on his couch, my nard gave forth its fragrance. My beloved is to me a sachet of myrrh that lies between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms in the vineyards of Engedi. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves. Behold, you are beautiful, my beloved. Truly delightful. Our couch is green. The beams of our house are cedar. Our rafters are pine. I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. As a lily among brambles, so is my love among the young woman. As an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. With great delight I sat in his shadow, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. Sustain me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am sick with love. His left hand is under my head, and his right hand embraces me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. I feel like we need to pray again. (laughs) Okay, so I'm going to skip verses 12 through 14, not because there's not an answer or an interpretation to it, but actually I want to talk about those verses tomorrow. So we'll work through verses 12 through 14 tomorrow. What I want you to see in this passage is how this, the lovers speak to one another. By the way, these are some of the questions that I had, and so I'm going to talk about those later as well. If you do have questions, feel free to shoot them at me, and I'll be happy to maybe sport one of those even tomorrow, um, but then we'll have that Q&A time on Thursday uh, morning after the session, which will be an optional time again as well. Okay, so uh, what do we have here? This section really begins back in verse 5, where uh, the, the woman says, don't gaze at me, I don't look good, and then they begin this playful bantering back and forth. She says in verse 7, tell me, O you whom my soul loves, where you pasture, where you make it lie down at noon. And she basically propositions him to a midday rendezvous of love. And then he responds playfully in return. If you do not know, O most beautiful among women, follow in the tracks of the flock and pasture your goats inside, uh, beside the shepherd's tents. And he continues to compliment her and they talk about the jewelry Uh, And then the complimenting continues, and she propositions him again here in verses 12 through 14 with the king on his couch. Uh, And then he responds in verse 15, Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. 
Your eyes are doves. Do you see this playful banter back and forth? What we see here throughout this section, there's two truths that we can learn about love, about intimacy. The one is the power of words. The power of words. And I want you just to think about that. I'm just laying that groundwork right now to think about the power of words, the power of words to awaken love. And we'll talk about that just later on, probably near the end of the, of the day. And the, these lovers, the speech that they use, it, it awakens. Uh, and then here, the words that they use are very complementary. The word engedi is actually a play. It's a play on words. He compliments her eyes. The word in Hebrew for en in engedi, it means a spring. But just like we have play on words in English, my son has become a bit of a pun, uh, a pun kid. <laughs> I'm not a big fan of puns, but uh, he is. Our pastor had a they had a cookout and there was an issue and the the meat got spoiled and uh, he was like yeah they had bratwursts he was like our pastor brought the worst meat <laughs> I know he's like the classic dad joke right and he's thirteen <laughs> well that's just like what you have here the word for n is the same word in Hebrew for eyes eyes so he is what is he doing he's listening. And she says, and Getty, and then he makes a play on words and compliments her eyes because it's the same word in Hebrew. And she was doing the same thing because the Gedi part, okay, this means a little goat. And back here in verse 8, pasture your young goats. Guess what? That's the same word. So they're listening to one another and they're playfully bantering back and forth with this poetry. Uh, that's a whole other conversation. Poetry. Is poetry important? Well, mo- much of the Bible's written in poetry. So God did that for a reason. Something for you to think about. I'm going to walk away from that one too. I can't talk about everything. So um, they're playfully bantering back and forth. It continues even into the next line because he says, behold, you are beautiful. And then what does she say? Behold, you are beautiful. And the ESV even keeps that translation to illustrate that they're saying the same thing back and forth. Uh, normally, we would say you are handsome because he's the guy. And then in verse 17, we have this recreation of the Garden of Eden. Our couch is green. The beams of our house are cedar. Our rafters are pine. And they create this love scene that's outside in God's creation in a recreation of the Garden of Eden. This is ideal love. This is the way love is supposed to be. The song doesn't just leave love in the ideal, however. We also see love in the real. We'll talk about that tomorrow. Uh, today we're going to talk about a little bit about the ideal and then what the song then builds us into. Our real text is 2-7. That's where we're getting here. Right? But right now I want us just to get the context. I'm going through this really quickly to get to our verse. In chapter 2, there is a transition here, but not a major transition. The lovers are still playfully bantering back and forth. She changes the metaphor, though. She states, I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. A lot of times we see this rose word and we're like, wow, that's something super special, you know? But it's actually not. The rose here is just another flower. And what are you going to see in the plain of Sharon? A lot of flowers. What are you going to see in the valleys? A lot of 
lilies. She is not complimenting herself here. She is essentially saying, you know what I am? I am just another girl. I'm one flower among a whole valley of flowers. But then look at how he responds in verse 2. As a lily among brambles, so is my love among the young woman. Do you see the correspondence here? The young woman, these are all of the other flowers, all of those other girls, but they're not flowers to him. What are they? And what do you do with a bramble? What do you do with a, to- a thorn? Well, what do you not do with it? <laughs> you don't touch it. You can see the power of words in the, these lovers. They're complimenting one another. They're flirting with one another. They love one another. She responds in kind, but changes the metaphor. She uses the illustration of an apple tree. And he is an apple tree among the trees of the forest. See, the trees of the forest are the young men. He is the apple tree. And then she explains and builds upon the metaphor in the next verse. With great delight, I sat in his shadow, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. The shadow here represents protection. Throughout the Old Testament, we have the metaphor of a shadow being a source of protection. What should a man be for his wife? Her protector. Furthermore, what else should he be doing for her? He should be providing for her. He provides protection. He provides provision for her. He is her provider. He is her protector. And then she continues speaking here and Being overcome, the text really builds through verses 4 through 6. We have this banqueting house. This banqueting house, okay? It's a very kind Christian translation, okay? This is like the house of wine. That's literally what it is. It's the house of wine because what is she experiencing right now? She is intoxicated with love. Uh, Love has been awakened, And she's intoxicated by it. His banner over me is love. You know that little song, that little Christian song? You know, his banner over me is love. His banner over me is love. You know, what is that talking about in the Song of Songs? You know, what is a banner for? What do we use a banner for? You guys seen the the statue of Iwo Jima, you know, the guys, they storm the mountain and they take the flag, the U.S. flag, and they put it on there. And what does that symbolize? What does that communicate? What does it communicate? We've taken over this land, okay? This is ours. And it's not him saying, I've conquered you. Do you understand that? What is it? It's her saying, you've conquered me. I'm yours. I want to rethink that song. You think our little daughter is singing, his banner over me is love. It's like, I've been... Won over and conquered. Anyway. All right. So verse five, sustain me with raisins, refresh me with apples. This is the love fruits, uh, or the love foods of the ancient day. And our modern love food, what are they? It'd be like chocolate or, you know, okay, dot, 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 dot. So I, we have, my wife and I have a funny story about that one time, you know, we're studying through the song and she put some, I came back to my office and there was like, 
some, uh, an apple, and there were some, was it raisins? It was raisins. She brought an apple and some raisins and just left them on my desk. I think she put like maybe a little heart on it, but she was being really coy, all right? <clears throat> well, you know, sometimes the students, they just go around and they just give professors, you know, food or whatever else. And I think it was one of those days or something. And so I walk into my office and there is this apple and there are these raisins. And I'm like, well, it's kind of a weird thing for the students to be dropping off. And so, you know. I eat the apple and, you know, I go about my business and just keep going through my day. I go home for lunch and, you know, she's expecting some kind of uh, uh, <clears throat> comment or something. And, you know, I just like going about my day. <laughs> <clears throat> this is, uh, you know, God brings trials into your lives for various reasons. And <clears throat> sometimes I think he does that so that he gives us an illustration of how communication can sometimes break down and lovers have to work through some problems and issues. And it wasn't a big deal, but it was something that uh, it didn't go the way she expected. <laughs> Here she states, I'm sick with love. And then there in verse six, his left hand is under my head and his right hand embraces me. Uh, this is an embrace. This is not a I love my daughter kind of an embrace. This is a I loves my wife kind of an embrace. And then in verse 7, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. And this is our text for today. How far is too far? We're going to study through this phrase, oh yeah, I want to show you something else before I pull that up. This verse here in Song of Songs 2-7, okay, we see it again. In fact, we see it again and not very far. By the way, this is the end of the section. Pretty much everybody agrees that there's a major break right here between Song 2-7 and 2-8, uh, and I agree too. Uh, if we turn the page, or two pages in the scripture journal here, we see here in Song 3 verse 5, we have this verse. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Okay, what's the difference between those two verses? That's right, nothing. Okay, it's the exact same thing. And pretty much every scholar agrees there's a major division right there between Song 3, 5, and 3, 6 as well. Now, one more time, go to the end of the book and go to Song 8 and verse 4. Song 8 and verse 4. I want you to see this in God's Word. I can just put it up on a screen and a PowerPoint presentation, but I really want you to see this is in the Bible. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. And actually, in this instance, in verse 4, it is it is, functions a little bit differently, and it's actually in Hebrew a rhetorical question. It would really be better translated, why would you stir up or awaken love before or until it pleases? Why would you do this? And that's what the song is emphasizing, this refrain, do not stir up nor awaken love until it pleases. When I started studying the Song of Songs and I went into my professor's office and I said, I want to study the Song of Songs. What's a paper topic that I could write on? He said, well, I think you should write on sexual arousal in the Song of Songs. 
sexual arousal in the Song of Songs. So biblical theology of sexual arousal in the Song of Songs. I'm like, okay, whatever. Okay, I'm going to dive into this thing and we'll figure it out. Uh, why did he have me study that out? I didn't realize it at the time. I wasn't even really familiar with the adjuration refrain. What does it mean to awaken love? What is sexual arousal? Hmm. I hope that you will begin to think about that as a result of our time in God's word today. And as you think about that, I pray that you would have a more biblical understanding and thinking of what it means or how far might be too far. So the adjuration refrain, that's what we're going to study today. We're going to, this is going to be a lot more teaching than preaching, but God's word is going to hopefully teach you. I pray that that's what this is doing. I pray that you would look at your life, particularly you singles, uh, and then you parents, as you seek to guide your children in holiness. Uh, grandparents and parents of uh, grandparents and whatever, okay? I guess that's probably not possible. But anyway, I, I hope that you can encourage your young people so that they would have a better probability of succeeding in this area called life. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. What does it mean to adjure? To adjure. We see this phrase a couple of, several times in the Old Testament. It's actually a very common word. It means to make an oath. In Genesis 21, 31, therefore he called the place Beersheba because the two of them swore an oath. That's your word right there. Okay? When it says, I adjure you, she's essentially saying, I make you take an oath. This is a really fascinating idea within our current cultural moment. As we had this movement about 20 years ago, okay, the purity movement, okay, all that was going on back 20 years ago that you probably grew up in, and there is this emphasis on purity rings and purity this and purity that and purity this and purity that. There's this big revulsion against that whole idea right now, big time. And there was some wrong thinking associated with that movement. I'll definitely concede that point. But you know, there's one thing that they got right. Purity, okay? God wants you to be pure. That's true. And furthermore, it's kind of fascinating that that movement was very much about oaths. And now the big push is against that. Woo, big time against that. Now, I'm not saying that you need to take an oath, and I'm not going to call upon the singles here to take an oath today. I want you, <laughs> you go through at least the next two days before you get a little bit of an idea what you might be taking an oath to. And that was one of the big problems with the movement. People were taking these oaths, and they didn't really know what they were swearing, you know, or what was really going to make it to be able to successfully keep that oath, all right? Um, but one thing that this author, or that the Song of Songs is doing is she's saying, take an oath, so it's not something that's unbiblical. Actually be biblical to take an oath. So that's what we have here at the very beginning. I make you swear. That's the idea there. I make you swear. I make you take an oath. And the, the pronoun there, the you there, is a masculine plural pronoun. So while the primary recipient of this oath or this plea to take an oath, is the daughters of Jerusalem, the single young ladies, there is a secondary call to the single men to take this charge seriously and to take an oath themselves. 
Now, the second component of this oath formula, because that's what it is, normally you would swear by some kind of a deity. You would swear by the Lord of hosts, by God Almighty. That's what you would normally expect. But look at this phrase. Look at this oath formula. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field. It's kind of a weird thing to swear by. A deer? Really? So, if I want to break the oath, so... I just go shoot Bambi and then I'm free? Is that, is that how that works? And one of the things that a couple of you have come and talked to me about is, well, isn't Jesus in the Song of Songs? You know, isn't this intimacy that we've seen between the lovers, the husband and the wife, isn't there some kind of a correlation between Jesus and the church? Well, in Ephesians 5, Jesus uses the physical relationship of a husband and wife to kind of illustrate the relationship between Jesus and the church. But Jesus is not in the Song of Songs. In fact, God was intentionally omitted from the Song of Songs. Like, what? Well, who would you expect to be in that phrase right there at that point in that adjuration? You would expect it to be the Lord. You would expect it to be God. And actually, the reason why the animals are mentioned, I know there's some real weird marks there up there on the page, and you're like, I don't know, I can't read any of that stuff. Well, that's your words for gazelles, and that's your words for does of the field. And I'm going to put some other marks up there that you're not going to be able to see or you're not going to be able to interpret. But hopefully you can see the similarity between these things. I mean, take a look here. This little shape here at the beginning, we'll just get rid of that because that thing is the preposition, all right? And look at the similarity between those two words. Can can you see the difference? Yeah, neither can I, okay? Because the word gazelles in Hebrew is the same word as the word hosts as in the Lord of hosts, a common name for the Lord throughout the Old Testament. And furthermore, this next one, again, we got that preposition at the beginning, and this letter here, that's a vowel, so it's not even pronounced. And this makes it plural. That makes it plural here. And, and the sounding of it even is elotasadeh, elotasadeh, el shaddai, elotasadeh. El Shaddai. The Hebrew reader would have caught it. He would have understood it. And they would have understood, oh, we're not really swearing by gazelles. We're not just swearing by does of the field. Now, the question is, why doesn't Solomon just include the Lord's personal name? Why doesn't he just say El Shaddai? Well, there was a great confusion in the ancient Near Eastern world. And by the way, it's coming back today, too confusion between the intimacy between a husband and a wife and the intimacy between a person and God. There's a connection that happens between a husband and a wife, and it's a very mysterious connection, this act of intimacy. And as a result of that act, there was a confusion in the ancient Near Eastern world, and they would confuse that combination, that connection between a husband and a wife, or between a man and a temple prostitute, okay? And the connection between that man and God, or a false deity. 
You see, God's name was intentionally omitted from the song because he's like, you know what? This connection that's happening between a husband and a wife, that's something that I created that's a beautiful, that's a good thing. And I see that and I have something to say about it. But I'm not like, you're not connecting to me in that way. And this is something that's been appearing in Christian literature and Christian books of late. Christian authors are, are seeing the similarity between a, a, a believer's relationship to God and a believer's relationship sexually to a spouse or just to anybody. And they're like, wow, these are really similar things. And they're starting to use the same terminology. They're starting to confuse the same thing that the ancients confused. And I want to just caution you to be careful about associating or over, uh, over, um, creating too close of a connection between these two things. Because the author of the Song of Songs, guess what? He intentionally um, made a distinction. God's name never appears in the Song of Songs. Not once. There's one use where it's veiled and there's disagreement whether it is truly God's name. It's an abbreviated form of his name if it is his name. Or whether or not it's a, it's a superlative construction. Anyway, okay, we'll talk about that in two days. Uh, we'll be in that text in a couple of days. But the point being is that you need to be careful about this whole idea of intimacy between a husband and wife and the intimacy between God and yourself. You need to draw close to God. Yes, I want you to do that. And God is pleased when you draw close to your spouse. And if you're wondering, this isn't a text that we're actually talking about today, but if you're wondering, you know what, is God seeing this? Is God see the intimacy between a husband and a wife? He does. In fact, in Song of Songs chapter 5, we actually see what God sees and he has a perspective of it, perspective on it. In Song 5.1, the male lover states, I came to my garden, my sister, my bride. I gathered my myrrh with my spice. I ate my honeycomb with my honey. I drank my wine with my milk. Okay, I'm just going to let you try to figure out what that's talking about. Okay, and then somebody else is automatic, is suddenly speaking. And the ESV translators say that this is the mysterious others, which I would contend is the mysterious narrator. And who is the narrator? The narrator is God. And just as we tell our young people, you know, when you go out on that date, remember, I can't see what's going on, but somebody else can, and he knows what's going on. And you need to live in the fear of God and seek to please him and honor him on that date. So also, when a marriage is living and going the way that God designed it, guess what? God sees that. And what does he say? He says, enjoy be drunk. This is literally be intoxicated. God says, I created this thing. I could have said, hey, you know what? Mix a little bit of this and mix a little bit of that. And then poof, out comes baby. You know, he didn't do that. All right. He made this thing called intimacy. And if we live and, 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 and if we look at intimacy the way that God designed it, it's a beautiful and a good thing. And he sees his creatures enjoying it the way that he designed. And he says, enjoy. That's God's perspective. Okay, let's go back to the adjuration refrain. That was bonus. I wasn't really going to go through that, but 
Hopefully I have time for everything else I'm going to talk about this morning. Here we go. By the gazelles are the does of the, spe- of the field. Now what's this next phrase? That you not stir up or awaken love. What does it mean to stir up? What does it mean to awaken? Well, what did you, what were you doing this morning at 3 a.m.? Most of you. I'm sure there was somebody that was not doing too well. <laughs> well, hopefully you were. All right. That's hopefully what was going on. And then, you know, some of you got little ones and you may have been stirred up or awakened uh, because of that little one. <laughs> okay? And that's the idea here, that you not stir up or awaken. In other words, you're supposed to let love sleep. That's why we need to be careful as adults how we talk about intimacy around our children. And that's why I try to be careful when I speak on intimacy. I try to use the language that the Song of Songs uses. The Song of Songs speaks in metaphor so that if you have a younger audience that doesn't understand, what happens? goes right over their heads. You know, I remember watching Robin Hood as a little kid. You know, the cartoon version? Robin Hood and little John running through the forest. Okay? You guys remember? And there's that one little scene right at the very beginning where, you know, little John's dressing up with uh, as some, some woman and he has these fake blessedness on and everything. And they're blasting through the forest and then they have some confrontation and Robin Hood's like, wait, little Johnny lands his hands right up there on little John's fake blessedness. I remember my grandpa, who's a preacher, and he's seeing that scene and he just starts giggling. And I remember being a little kid looking at grandpa and being like, what's so funny? You know? Woo! Right over the head, okay? And you can talk about intimate matters, and the song communicates intimate matters in that way. Uh, So that I want to try to be careful as I talk about the song that I not stir up or awaken love in the minds and hearts of children. By the way, uh, is that the message that our culture communicates to our children? Yeah, exactly not. All right, and you as parents need to be very careful what classes they might be enrolled in, especially if they're in a public school system, okay, because this is something that you want to sleep. And there are various different good resources that you can consult and use talking to your children. This is not just like a one-time conversation type of an issue, especially in our culture. This is developing a culture in your home, in your family. Hey, you know what? If you ever see some picture or something that's kind of inappropriate, whether it's at school or church, okay, or maybe a neighborhood, or even at home, if you see some picture, it's just like, that doesn't look like it's right. Or if somebody's like not wearing you know, the clothing that they should. Hey, just let me know. You're not going to be in trouble. I just want to know about it, okay? You start fostering that kind of a culture right when they're five, six, four, three. I mean, they, they start so early today. The world has become so perverse. You need to start cultivating this culture now. The Song of Songs teaches that you do not stir up nor awaken love until it pleases. So what does this word awaken mean? I have a slide here that explains it. It means to wake up like, hey, you're going to agitate it. You're going to disturb like you were sleeping and your kids started screaming and you were agitated and disturbed. Okay, so that's the idea there. Now I want to talk about what is love. All right, general principles. Now we're going to try to define love. Whew, here we go. This is just the beginning. We're going to talk about it again tomorrow because tomorrow we're going to look at song 2, 8 to 3, 5. And what do you have in song 3, 5? The adjuration refrain again, right? 
So we're going to have song 2, 8 to 3, 5. And then on, on Thursday, we're going to talk about it again. I hope to expand upon your definition of love from the Song of Songs. What is love? So this is love. Hey, we got to figure it out. Woo! All right, close your Bibles. We're all done. Let's go home. Glad Disney figured it out for us. First, I want to explain the different kinds of love. I feel like I don't even, I shouldn't even need to do this, but I want, and we do need to instill this in our young people, especially our young girls, that, you know what, you're supposed to love your neighbor as yourself, but we're talking about a different kind of love, <laughs> all right? In fact, this is going to be further explained in Song 8, where there is a component where you do love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, but there's this other kind of love, this, this Song of Songs kind of love, that's an exclusive kind of love. Okay, so we've got that one done. We're going to keep going. Second, the love is an action. We're familiar with this concept. Love is an action. Uh, 1 Corinthians 13. Everybody loves going to 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. I see so many 1 Corinthians 13 things on on uh, at marriages, which I always thought was kind of funny. I mean, I see the correlation, but it's kind of like how you're supposed to love everybody, you know. Um, but if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. You need to love. We talked about love last night, okay, with Pastor Odell. We talked about love this morning. Um, Pastor Phil really hit it on uh, from uh, for Colossians chapter 3. First uh, Corinthians thirteen four. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. Is not puffed up. That's exactly right. Love is an action, but love is more than just an action. You know, you can do things for different reasons. Do you ever love somebody just because, well, you had to? You ever love somebody because your mom told you to? You know, are you the mom now and you're telling your kid to love your brother and you can see within them that. I love you. <laughs> really? <laughs> I don't think you do. <laughs> See, love should be more than an action. Love should be something that you want. Love is more than an action. True biblical love is a desire. It's something that you want to foster in your child. Just like one's love for the Lord. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. This isn't that the, the psalmist isn't writing saying, oh, I love you, Lord, because I have to. No, he wants God. He loves God. And we repeatedly speak about this theme throughout our chapel sermons and our, our Sunday sermons, and that you want to have a love for God. Now, how do you demonstrate a love for God? And what do we learn repeatedly throughout the New Testament and the Old Testament? Okay, I've got 1 John uh, 5, 3 up here. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. Okay, do you love God? Well, are you doing what he said? Okay, you demonstrate a love for God by obeying his law. And there's this weird cyclical thing that kind of happens and I teach the um, kindergarten through sixth grade at our, at our church. And I try to enforce with the children, you know what, do you want to go to church? And how many kindergarten to, four, to sixth graders really like to go to church? I mean, there are some because their buddies are there and their friends and so on and so forth. But a lot of times they don't really want to come to church for the right reason. I'm like, what you need to do is you don't need to 
want to come to church. You need to want to obey God's law. So often when we're beginning to teach our children, that was wrong, and we discipline them or however that manifests itself, okay? And then they're like, well, I don't want that to happen again. So <laughs> nothing happens in here, but they start to change their behavior. That's not the goal. You want to get to the point where they want to obey. It's not because they have to. It's because they want to. How many wives want to be loved because their husband has to? How many wives want to be loved because their husband wants to? Nobody wants to be loved because they have to. I want to be loved because my wife wants me, wants to. So this is love. Biblical love is an affection. That's what I am defining for you here. I am defining an affection for you. This is something that's learned. It's cultivated. It's something that's practiced. You obey God's commandments, and then you hopefully are cultivating a habit, a love for God. In Deuteronomy 6.5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Do you love him? You're commanded to. How do you command love? I thought it was just something that happened, something that I experienced, something that I felt. Or can you be commanded to love and then you can cultivate that love? Like, I don't love my spouse anymore. I really don't love him. I really don't love her. I really don't love God anymore. I really just don't love him. Start. How do I do that? One step at a time. Obey his commandments. Be faithful in church. Reach out to a godly mentor. Talk to your pastor. I mean, the list could go on and on and on. You cultivate a love for God. So also, you cultivate a love for your spouse. This is love. Biblical love is an affection. Okay, The affections reflect the desires of one's heart. The heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Don't follow your heart. It's true. But you know how often what we do is we do follow our heart? We do exactly what we desire. Guess what that desire is? That desire is your heart. You need a heart transplant. You need a new heart. And until you get a, a new body, okay, a resurrected body, you're stuck with this one. So what do you need to do? You need to change what you want. You need to change your desires. So at Proverbs 4.23, keep your heart with all diligence for from it flow the issues of life, the springs of life. Everything's coming from the heart. That's why the Old Testament and New Testament theology is all about the heart. Pastor Pat talked about it a couple of nights ago. Your heart is what matters. You need to change what you desire. 
And your goal as a parent is not to enforce what you desire. It's to cultivate in your child what God desires. That's the goal. And what you want to cultivate in them are godly affections. And everything's going to fight against you as you seek to cultivate these affections. You might be thinking like, man, I thought this was about the Song of Songs. Oh, it is. It's, we're defining love here. And something's supposed to not be awakened. I don't get it. Stick with me. The world is constantly communicating to your children, to you. This is what you love. This is what you desire. This is what you want. In the entertainment, in the movies, in the video games, in the social media, and the list can go on and on and on and on. I was talking to a, a, a father, and he was grieving because his son is not desiring the right things. And I'm like, well, who is he hanging out with? Well, these kids, that they go to church, and uh, they, well, what, what do they talk about? When they say, oh, they're talking about their video games and blah, 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 blah. Well, his kid in all of his world, in his entire culture, even at church, is all around worldly activities. It's a whole culture. It's a whole worldview. It's everything. And our world is seeped into all of it. Instead, what do we need to cultivate? We need to cultivate a culture of Bible study, of prayer. What did we talk about this morning in Colossians 3? Put off, put on. Obedience to God's commands. We need to cultivate this affection for the Lord through church attendance, through church ministry, through church service, through loving others. Do you understand that the goal has been far too low for our youth? Far too low. Okay, your goal is not that your kid doesn't get pregnant or get somebody else pregnant, all right? That's not the goal. Your goal is not that they remain sexually pure until marriage. That is not the goal. We need much higher goals for Christian living for our children. They need to be, when they start to read, they should be reading God's word. Amen? They need to be reading God's word. They need to be into the Bible. And I've been recently convicted. It's like, you know what? The ancients didn't even have copies of God's word. How did they draw near to God? How was it that they drew near to God? Lord, I'm a sinner. Forgive me. I've sinned against you again. How old do you need to be to do that? So in our youth ministry, or children's ministry, I'm like, when you can't read, you know what you need to do. You need to go to bed and pray. And then when you get up, you can spend some time in prayer. That's how Jesus, the Bible, they constantly are drawing close to God through prayer. We need to cultivate this affection in our young people. One spouse, you're like, I don't love my spouse anymore. Well, how do you go about loving her or him again? You remember, you focus, you describe, you write, you serve, you do things that cultivate an affection for that spouse. And as you do those things, guess what happens? You begin to love. When a couple starts dating, maybe a young lady comes home and went on a date and then she's with her girlfriends, you know, what happens? What are they doing? You know, everything's all about that relationship. Okay? What is that? That's an affection. That's a love. Is that a biblical love? 
Is that awakening love? What is that? So where are singles? Okay, so you're like, man, you just spent a ton of time on this. What are you doing here? What is love? What do you mean by stir up or awaken love until it pleases? I've walked students through this on multiple occasions, and I don't usually give them an answer because they won't like it. And if they at least begin to think about it, then they're at least walking on the right path. They're at least going in the right direction. And God wants you, his exhortation for you, to live in wisdom as a Christian single is to let love sleep until a specific time. And that time is when it pleases that time is when you can enjoy this gift called intimacy that God created, and you can enjoy it in its full. In Song 8.5, we have a, marriage, a married couple. Who is that coming up from the wilderness, leaning on her lover? Under the apple tree, I awakened you. Same word. And we have the awakening of love. Some in this audience need to awaken that love again for their spouse. Others might need to shut down some love that was awakened for somebody that they shouldn't love. We need to cultivate affections for the Lord. We need to cultivate affections for our spouse. And as singles, we need to let love sleep. Okay, so I'm done. That's the answer right there. That's how far is too far, right? It's all done. Like, you're horrendous. Like... (laughs) Yes, I am. Now, I really think that does answer the question, how far is too far? I really do. But singles, a lot of times, they just like need a little bit more boots on the ground, okay? They need a little bit more practical insight on how far is too far. They're like, can you, can you give me a little bit more? And I, I hesitate sometimes to even go through this just because it so detracts from everything that I was just saying. Because it's really not a this thing, it's a this thing, all right? It's not an out here thing, it's a heart thing, all right? And as we go through this material and I start talking about the physical kind of stuff, all right, I want you to not lose sight of the heart, And hopefully as I talk about the physical at least a little bit, I'll hopefully give you at least some some information that can help you lead your young people and to start planting some seeds at a very young age, okay? You can start doing this even when they're four or five, you know, when the Disney princess is kissing the Prince Charming and whatever else, which is funny that our culture is even getting away from that these days. (laughs) They don't even, anyway, let's... um, All right, but you can at least start laying a foundation in a four-year-old and a five-year-old and a 10-year-old and a 13 and 15-year-old and, and just start laying that foundation and saying, hey, guess what God's word has to say? And the one thing that I do want to talk about, I want to develop a biblical theology of kissing. And when I wrote my paper for my professor, uh, this was one of the things that I wanted to study through was kissing. What does the Bible actually have to say about kissing? Isn't that funny? You know, we go through this... Um, we can go to the Bible and we see these magnificent, transcendent truths about how we're not supposed to be earthly minded, but heavenly focused, like Pastor Pat was talking about last night, and not being covetous, but, but seeking to give. And these are great Christian truths that we really need to grasp. But then there are just these elementary things in this world that are very 
<clears throat> fleshly, if we want to call it that, okay, this, that word, that the Bible actually has something to say about it. And I think there's benefit that we actually see what God's word has to say about this so then we can help guide our youth. So what do we have in the Old Testament? Well, kissing in the Old Testament is, I should say usually, men kissing men. And it's often relatives. Okay, and there's a whole bunch of scripture passages there. You should just do a word search for kissing. See who's kissing who in the Bible. Is that kind of a weird thing to say? Laban desires to kiss his children and grandchildren. In Genesis 29, 11, okay, Jacob, after recognizing Rachel as a relative, he kisses her. That's a really unique one because you actually have... um, you actually have a, a man and a woman kissing, uh, which is quite unique, but they're still related. <laughs> um, and then in the New Testament, you know, we have the sinful woman that, you know, she's called the sinful woman, anoints Jesus' feet and she kisses them. And you do have like Psalm 2 where the kings kiss the feet of the Messiah. You have several kissing. This, that's something different than what we're talking about. Judas betrays Jesus with a kiss, and of course the church was exhorted to greet one another with a holy kiss. And everybody likes to go with that holy kiss. Like, I don't know if you're uh, participating in some holy kiss, friend, you know. So what are we talking about? What do we want to study? Well, what we want to talk about is a different kind of a kiss. Go, let's see here. Um, In Proverbs 7.13, There's this woman, and she catches this man, and she kisses him. And with an impudent face, she speaks to him. Who is this woman in Proverbs 7 that kisses this man? Who is she? Then we have within the Song of Songs, we have some kissing. Remember this? Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. It's really superfluous. What else are you going to kiss him with, you know? Kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. I'm glad we got that figured out. Okay? It's a very redundant statement. It's extremely emphatic. And why? Because your caresses are better than wine. She reflects upon the intimate caresses of her husband, and she desires those. What's gonna get her there again. Do we understand that? Okay, let's go to song eight. Now, this is going to get a little bit weird, all right? And we're just, we don't live in their culture, but they would call brother and sister lovers. Uh, we see sister in uh, song four, Uh, several times where the male lover, he calls his wife, his new wife, his bride, his sister. And so here she's calling him brother, but not really brother. What does she say here? Oh, that you were like a brother to me who nursed at my mother's breasts. Okay, just leave that alone. Okay, I could walk you through it. It's actually, it's not what you think it is, but we'll just keep going. If I found you outside, I would kiss you. And look at this next phrase. None would despise me. Isn't that interesting? No one would despise me. What did their culture think about romantic kissing in public? They frowned on it. What does our culture think, even today? A couple are making out. What's a common proverb that's quipped to the couple? Get a room. 
Where is this woman wanting to take her lover? I would lead you and bring you into the house of my mother, she who used to teach me. I would give you spiced wine to drink and juice of my pomegranate. I'll let you figure that one out. Verse 3, his left hand is under my head and his right hand embraces me. And then we get the adjuration refrain again. It's the same phrase as song 2-6. Hmm. We have other instances of kissing within the Song of Songs. In Song 7, what did I do? Oh, I missed a page when I scanned this thing. Look at that. It goes from Song 7-4 to 7-12. Okay, well, we'll look at the physical Bible here. Actually, I'll just go to Song 4. The same thing's in Song 4. Go to Song 4. Okay, so in song four, in verse 11, look at this. Your lips drip nectar, my bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue. Huh, wonder how he knows what it tastes like underneath her tongue. Okay, so we have this romantic kissing within the Old Testament and within the Song of Songs. And in what kind of a context is it always found? Let's return. Okay, so romantic kissing. Now, I don't like consulting or looking at other secular resources or even Christian resources. I'm not looking at anything secular here. But this point, I think, has really been lost within our Christian culture. And this is a line that I believe that we can draw and say, how far is too far? Does kissing awaken love? It does. Okay? It does. It does throughout the Song of Songs. The biblical corpus speaks for itself. And if you need some witnesses from just people that are writing books and whatever else, sure, here you go. All right? So Chuck Milan writes in We're Just Friends and Other Dating Lies. He has four different uh, uh, relationship levels. Level three, dating with the future in view. This is an exclusive relationship. Kissing, Kissing can be begin at this level, but it is to be avoided if it stirs too much passion. Level four, dating and engaged to you. Physical limits may need extra protection as desires will increase with commitments. Sex and the Single Christian Girl by Mary and Jordan Ellis. Anything beyond kissing prior to marriage is off limits. This is the off frequently uh, stated, hey, this is too far line. You can kiss, but that's it. No further. Kissing is dangerous. It opens the door to sexual temptation and makes it very difficult to remain pure. Fascinating that they recognize the power of kissing, but then say, hey, you know what? You can still do it. Hmm. Or are we awakening something that's not supposed to stop? Even though we didn't cross the line, she speaks about her personal relationship with her to-be lover or uh, husband. Even though we didn't cross the line, we struggled in order not to fall into sin. We had to reestablish our boundaries from time to time. As I've talked to pastor after pastor and various different individuals, okay, this is what I hear all the time. And most often, they don't stop. In Real Sex, The Naked Truth About Chastity by Lauren Winter, this is a Christian title. It's not, it's not, it's not a secular title. She states, I realize some readers will think that kissing ought to be off limits until you've said, I do. If you're in the no-kissing camp, don't worry. I won't try to talk you out of it. 
I know people who've held to the no kissing before marriage rule, and through knowing them, I've moved from thinking they're nuts, was her first perception, to having the utmost respect for them. But I never joined their cause. What's compelling about the no kissing rule is its clarity. It is very, very clear. It admits no gray area. If you're not even smooching, you're unlikely, and by the way, it's unlikely, you can go beyond what you should go, even without kissing. I know of an instance of that. Somebody was really trying to, anyway. The flesh is very deceitful, okay? The heart is wicked, all right? It's not like some, you know, it's a heart issue. Don't forget, it's a heart issue. But you're unlikely to find yourself sliding down a slippery slope to sex itself. There is something decidedly unnatural. Listen to this terminology. She's completely oblivious to the Song of Songs. There is something decidedly unnatural about sparking desire and then arresting it night after night. That's what you have to do. And we're telling our young people, you can go this far and you can awaken this desire, but then you got to shut it down. You got to awaken this desire and then you got to shut it down. Night after night after night after night. And then what happens? Just a little bit more. 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 To refrain from kissing is to avoid not only temptation, but look at what she says, the odd shocks, fits, and starts of interrupted desire. We need to recapture a biblical sexual ethic. We need to recapture and teach our children to not awaken love. I'm going to conclude with this. It's bigger than just kissing. Don't forget that. It's bigger than just kissing. In song one, remember the context? What are the lovers doing? What is awakening the love in song one and two? I love you. I love you. Do you really? Do you know what those three words mean to a young lady? It's almost like I want to tell my daughter, you know, some guy comes up to you and says, I love you, just punch him in the face. No, you don't. (laughs) Shut up. Shut up. Okay, I need to stop. Uh, we'll, we'll bring up some of these issues. Thank you for your questions. Uh, woman adornments, male beauty, uh, literal interpretation. Okay, uh, we'll try to bring up, uh, discuss some of that stuff. But um, I pray that I've given you, I pray that God's word has given you something to think about and equipped you so that you can live uh, to love successfully and then also equip your children to love successfully. Let's close in prayer. Lord, thank you for this time that we were able to get into your word. I pray that... Um, Lord, I pray that the singles that are here, that they would uh, make the hard choice to not awaken love. And Lord, as they seek to not awaken love, I pray that they would have discernment of what that means. And Lord, as we are parents and we seek to guide our children not to awaken love, that uh, we might be better equipped to guide them and to direct them to be successful at life. Thank you for your word in giving us the resources to love well and to teach our children to love well. Give us wisdom to use it 
We give you the glory, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.